You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Welcome to Why We Do What We Do. This is Abraham. And your co-host, Ryan O. And today we have a special interview with a guest that was generous enough to come on and share his wisdom and knowledge with us about the topic of fluency. So sort of a follow-up to last week's episode. I I first met uh, Dr. Donnie Newsom years ago at a conference, and he's always amazed me with his breadth of knowledge, but also just how far he dives in deep. And this topic is one of those that he knows extremely well. Yeah, there's a lot of valuable insights and things to contribute. So um, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump right into our interview with Dr. Donnie Newsom. All right. So I am here with Dr. Donnie Newsom. So uh, uh, we'll have you introduce yourself and, and give us your credentials and background and that sort of thing. Sure. I'm Donnie Newsom. I'm a founding director of Fit Learning, which is a global network of affiliated uh, precision teaching laboratories. Uh, I got my PhD at UNR. And proud to be doing the work that I'm doing and happy to be here with you tonight. Awesome. And so let's start with a little background in uh, how did you come to arrive at the job that you're in and, and what sort of drew you to that, if you will? Boy, good question. So I actually did a master's thesis that was somewhat related to uh, fluency building and then later learned that I had really kind of gotten it all wrong and was really inspired and ended up following my wife, Kendra, to, to Fit Learning. Early after graduate school, was actually doing organizational consulting and on the side was hanging out with Kendra and kind of giving indirect consultation around the Fit Learning program that they were running at the time. And eventually, uh, I guess I gave enough good advice to get myself a, a gig. <laughs> Great. All right, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Our, we're just talking about fluency and what that means, what it is, and that sort of thing. So let's just start by your understanding of what is fluency. Well, uh, I'll appeal to a guy named Carl Binder for this, who okay. I think nails it perfectly. Uh, fluency is the combination of accuracy and speed that characterizes masterful performance. And so that's, that's not too technical of a definition, uh, but I, I think it really gets at the root of what it's all about. Sort of anecdotally, we, we all understand fluency. We use it generally to talk about fluency in language, uh, which we all understand means that we speak the language well and, and can be understood. And we all have an experience of fluency in our lives. It's the things that we do that feel effortless, that come automatic, that we can sort of do without even thinking about it. What, what are some good examples that you, that you can think of just off the top of your head or, or that probably most people would be fluent at? Well, so I, I think a lot of people share the experience of uh, driving your car to work and getting to work and realizing that uh, you didn't really pay any attention to what happened on the way there. So, so you may pull up and, and wonder, gee, was that a stop sign or a red light? I remember stopping, <laughs> but you know, there, there's so you do the same routine every day. You've done it a million times, and it's so automatic and effortless that that really you're you're like kind of off in your thoughts the whole time, and and you don't even have to think about it. And what might be an example of someone who's really fluent at something that very few people are fluent at, and we can tell that they're fluent at, at that whatever that thing is? Well, sure. Take take a look at like Bruce Lee with some nunchucks. Okay. And <laughs> and you know like watch him and what he can do there. And you know imagine yourself in the same circumstance and like good luck not giving yourself a black eye with the nunchucks. <laughs> right. You know it's it, it's so readily apparent. You know what part of what makes fluency so obvious is that the lack of fluency is so obvious. You know, we're 
when, when we're up to doing things that we're not fluent at, it's frustrating. And all we want to do is get away from those tasks. Those are like not our favorite things to, to be engaged in. Sure. That's a great point. So I, I want to come back to that, but let's go ahead and, and I want to, we just talked about what fluency is. We just defined it. And I want to move then to what fluency is not and maybe some misconceptions about fluency and what people might think it is, but they're maybe misinformed or have some misunderstanding. Sure. So I, I think a common misconception is that fluency gets tied up with rate building uh, okay. really commonly. And, and a lot of times it, it, it is the case that being able to do something quickly and accurately and, and being able to increase the speed of your performance is helpful. But not in all instances. Fluency is really just sort of a synonym for real life mastery. Got it. So if you're really a master at something, you never forget how to do it. You can do it all day long. You can do it at the same performance level reliably, and you can apply your skill in new and different ways to solve novel problems in your environment. So what fluency isn't, it's not just about go as fast as possible. It's not like overlearning or something like that. And it's not about just accuracy either. You could be really accurate with something. Like So for example, I could read with 100% accuracy, but if I read four words per minute, I'm a terrible reader. Yeah. I'm not even close to being fluent in whatever language it is I'm trying to read. Uh, a friend of mine works in an elementary school and was telling me about the fact that he wanted to help some of his students who were struggling in math and asked the vice principals, can I give these kids like one of those math drill sheets? Just like, you know, have a minute to just get as many problems as they can, that sort of thing. And they're like, ooh, we don't, we don't want to use timers because that'll get uh, math anxiety, that sort of thing. So there's sort of this idea that asking kids to perform quickly will have them do poorly on whatever thing they're going to work on. Yeah, there's kind of a funny phenomenon in our culture where depending on where you look, you can find places where culturally we really understand what, what teaching to fluency means. And unfortunately, one of the last places that happens is in the classroom. So if you just take a look at like, you know, roll up to any like kids t-ball practice or you, you watch kids soccer, you watch a mu music lesson. Culturally, like any weekend dad can understand that to teach soccer or t-ball what you do is you show up and you build fluency in all the components of, of playing the game. So you don't just show up and play a game. You get there and you practice a good stance or a good grip or passing or dribbling or all these little things and you, you drill them until you master each little component and then you let that all come together in the game. And so fluency building is actually really well understood. You watch a music lesson and even the very best musicians like Yo-Yo Ma plays scales every single day. Yeah. And this is not a dude who's worried about forgetting the scales. Right. You know? He does it because he has an understanding of fluency in, in all the component tool skills is what's going to allow him to perform at a really high level when he needs all of those skills to come together uh, to play a piece. And so in the right niches, this is a really welcome idea, fluency, right. that we're going we're gonna to put things on a timer and we're going to understand what, not just go fast, but we're going to understand what the optimal rates are for certain performances. And for whatever reason, that's just kind of missing from the classroom. You know, just, just to give an example of, of where maybe it's not just all about going fast, you might think about someone who's a, maybe a master at meditation. Okay. So being a master at meditation is not at all about going fast. But if you really studied it and measured it, you could find optimal rates for things like breathing. And if you've ever listened to a, a recorded meditation coaching 
uh, from my perspective, there what wh- what you watch them do is actually shape down the rate at which they're prompting you to do things. So in the early lessons of these meditation coaching things, the coach kind of talks a lot. And if you're an experienced meditator, it's actually really annoying to try to listen to those early levels. But what what you find happens is that over time, they slowly allow more and more time for you to allow your mind to drift. And uh, their rate of speaking gets slower and slower as people are more masterful in their meditation practice. Um, Another example might be like deep sea free divers Mm -hmm. who are diving as deep down in the ocean as they possibly can without any scuba gear. So Mm -hmm. they're like going for depth. So, you know, for them, there's some optimal rate above the surface of how they hyperventilate themselves and Mm -hmm. oxygenate their blood as much as possible. Mm -hmm. But once they begin their dive, the optimal rate for breathing is zero. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) And and then then they start looking at the optimal rate for things like how often they kick. So there's an optimal rate for kicks that gets you the most distance down, burning the least amount of oxygen, for example. Awesome. And just to, to further on the example I started with, that it wasn't even just the idea of like, don't use timers, don't go fast, don't do that. They even specifically said, we don't do practice. You know, like we do a concept and then we go right to how you apply that concept without that practice step. And I, I like the idea of the sports analogy to how they, they really understand practice is key to everything and how you're going to do well. Um, so if you have, I just want to speak to that for, for a moment. Sure. Uh, Bill Hewitt has this awesome paper. The, the title of it is something to the effect of 10 faulty notions in educational practice or something. And one of those is that drill in practice dulls creativity. Right. It's like this faulty notion. And, and he does a great job in the paper kind of taking that apart. And, uh, you know, I can just tell you from my own experience that we, we do a lot of drilling mm-hmm. of practicing the same skills over and over. And that's never just for the sake of the one isolated skill we're working on. It's for the opportunity to see how a student who has successfully practiced and has an optimal accuracy and speed to their performance is able to take that skill and apply it in some way that you could never see coming. Um, So one of the exercises that we do at FIT, we call it the mega relational probe. Okay. And it's essentially straight out of uh, the original RFT book. And and what you do is you, you have like three columns of words and two of the columns are just random random words. We call them relata. And then the middle row is a row of relation types. Mm-hmm. And the game is you can pick any three mm-hmm. and you should have something to say about it. Sure. And so we end up we, – we, we put these kids through drills that are, you know, narrowly defined skills. And we help them build their rates and accuracies on those things. And, and that doesn't look all that creative. But when we get then give them the opportunity to apply those skills in a context where we say something like, when is a goat the partner of a fire truck? Or how is a banana the same as a grandma? We get to see what creativity is afforded to kids who have fluency in these, these more component level skills that we've drilled on. It's a great example. And so you've mentioned so far that with fluency, you're sort of talking about masterful performance in the real world and also the idea that there is sort of an optimal rate, which isn't always fast and and it can even change sometimes. And actually I was thinking, as you mentioned, the meditation coach for them, a masterful performance is being able to respond to the situation where they should prompt less. Like that's knowing the, the understanding that situation well enough to back off the, the prompting and the, and the delivery of instruction. And so with all of that in mind, 
and this idea of masterful rate, how do you go about measuring fluency? How do you know when something's fluent? And do you, if you have these rates that sometimes they're sort of a moving target and sometimes they're, that's not too fast, not too slow, that sort of thing. Sure. There's sort of a, we take on a two-step process to try and understand what rate we're building towards for a student. And the first step is usually to just benchmark people who are, we already understand to be experts at whatever the skill is we're doing. So, and, and some of these, these data are really widely available. Like you can go look and see that, you know, a third grader is doing well if they can read 110 words per minute, for example, right. uh, on grade level. Now, so that benchmark is, is a good starting point because if you're trying to work with an individual and improve their skills, you're going to use those benchmarks to see where are the, where are the points for potential improved performance and where's the gap between what this individual is doing and what the average competent person is able to do in the same skill set. Sure. So that's a starting point that might tell you what to teach. But then from there, there has to be an acknowledgement that what an optimal rate for me might not be the optimal rate for you. So you and I, for example, would read at different rates. You could bet on it. In fact, sure. I'm, I'm certain that I would read slower than you. I'm a slow reader when I read for comprehension. And that's okay sure. because the functional outcomes are all there. Right. So um, if, if the result of my reading is that I understand everything that I just read, I can tell you back uh, a synopsis of the thing I read, I can answer questions about it, then I've got a pretty functional reading repertoire. And that's really how we're going to define what fluency means for me. Okay. And so the optimal rate for me might be just different than the optimal rate for you. So starting with the benchmark point it tells us what where to zero in, but then once we've zeroed in, we're no longer seeking that benchmark aim. It's not as if like a third grader is at 109 words per minute, but then all of a sudden they hit 110 and the skies open and the angels <laughs> sing and now you're a fluent reader or something right. like that, right? <laughs> There's nothing magic in those numbers. They're just kind of like the ballpark. But then we're, we're acutely aware of the individualization required to find out really what's happening for, for this student versus that one. So it sounds like a lot of things that might be implied by that include that there is some component of go fast on at least those those smaller components of the skill. And But what you're really looking for, if you're going to dis- describe something as being fluent, is that outcome. Like, what can they do now that we put it to the test, we put it in like a, the situation where you have to apply it, that sort of thing? Sure. And the, the measurable characteristics of a performance that allow us to, to move forward confidently and know that I found what looks like an optimal rate for this person right here, right now, is that we can measure the things that we know are the results of real life mastery. So we know that if you've really mastered something, I don't forget it. So we can measure retention. We can stop practicing, put it on hold for a few weeks or a month, and then test again and see if it's right where we left it or if the, the, the skill has disappeared. We know that if you're a master of something, you can do it all day long without tiring. So we can do little tests of endurance for a skill that we've been working on. We can double or triple the the timing length, the practice window, and and see if it holds up. We know that people who are masterful are reliable performers. So we can look at variability day by day or performance by performance and see how variable are the data. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bruce Lee is very, very reliable on his ability to not whack himself in the face with nunchucks. You know what I mean? Like we could, we could chart that out and see that, that he's going to show up and do the, the same performance at the same level every time. And then finally, in the, maybe the trickiest measure 
is that we know you've really mastered a skill when you can apply it outside of the context that we've been teaching it in. So taking the skill, combining it with other skills, or applying it in a new and novel way, in a new environment to solve maybe a novel problem that you've never been confronted with before, we know you're fluent if those skills are available to you in those moments. Awesome. I think we've already sort of talked around this, but if you could say specifically why this is important, you know, couldn't someone might make the argument, couldn't people get by with not really being master, masterful at anything? They can sort of then get okay at most things enough to sort of survive. And you might make the argument instead that fluency is important and maybe even argue that it's important for everyone. Maybe not, but just sort of why you think it's important and to what extent it's important for most people. Sure. Well, uh, you know, I, I kind of take fluency to be a synonym for like functional mastery. And when I say mastery, that doesn't mean you are the most, that doesn't mean you have to be Bruce Lee. It doesn't (laughs) mean you have to be Yo-Yo Ma. It means you have to have a level of mastery that is functional for you and your life. And that's how I'm going to measure what fluency means at the level of the individual. And so I don't think anybody would argue that whatever skills you need should be the right amount of that skill for you to be really functional in your life. So on this idea that like, can you get away with just being sort of good at stuff? Right. You know, I, I'm afraid that like a lot of educators and, and a lot of people who are in the business of teaching others have already made the mistake of accepting that in the way that they craft their mastery criteria. So if, if you check out a lot of educational settings, you'll see that the measure is primarily accuracy. So they're not even looking at the rate of response. So, you know, we can set that aside as a totally different soapbox I can get on later. <laughs> but then they just look at accuracy like 80% correct is where the red flag might go up if a student's below 80% correct. Right. And, you know, when I think about that as someone who's out in the world trying to, trying to help kids have really successful lives, I want their life to be as successful or more successful than mine. So I have to look at what kind of goals do I set for myself in my own life? Mm -hmm. And I encourage anyone who's a teacher to look into your own life and see where is 80% correct acceptable? Where can you get away with that really and not end up like dead or in jail by the end of the day? Just think (laughs) about simple stuff. What if it's stop signs, 80% correct? What if it's getting dressed in the morning? What if it's counting the money in your wallet? What if it's showing up to work, right? Like yeah. 80% correct life is a disaster. It's a train wreck. <laughs> we should never set that as the goal for the people we're trying to help. Sure. <laughs> you know, it would certainly never be a goal for my life. I was just thinking like 80% correct buying your lunch. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, no, right. Yeah. That's stealing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and what if you only got fed 80% of the meals you were supposed to? You know? <laughs> now you're like one of Skinner's pigeons and you're, you know. That's right. 80% of free feeding weight. <laughs> are there things that that can't be fluent is there something that you someone might argue say well this doesn't this is not really a, a performance or a skill that really lends itself to this idea of fluency is there anything like that out there this is a really interesting question i'm, I'm not totally <laughs> sure a, a, a right answer on this but I'm, i yeah. mean for one thing i think it's got to be operant behavior okay you know i i just i don't think you could be fluent at sneezing or diarrhea, <laughs> or anything that's that's not an operant response. So, okay. I, so, but inside of the the realm of operants, I I kind of feel like you could be a master of anything. Okay. Now there may be plenty of things that are fluent that you don't want to be fluent. Sure. You could be a master at aggression or a master of property destruction, or a master of showing up late for work. And, um, and those would be things that, 
you know, would, if we measured it out, they would hit all the marks and we could say, yeah, that's, I guess that's fluent. But, uh, you know, it's sort of inherent in this is almost a values orientation of like fluency is for the things that you want. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, where there's fluency in the things that you don't want is where there's there's problems in your life. This is where your bad habits are. This is where your forgetfulness is. This is where your addictions are and things like that. Oh, here's one. Okay. It's always context dependent, I guess, is the point. So if you're a demolition derby driver, mm-hmm. fluently trashing cars is absolutely your goal. Yeah. And you could be a master demolition derby driver. Okay. But that is not a functional repertoire when you're out going to pick up groceries, you know? <laughs> so like driving people off the road left and right. So <laughs> if you could if you could wreck like three cars a minute, you're an awesome, you're a very fluent demolition derby driver. Right. But wrecking three cars a minute is not an optimal rate and that's not mastery of getting sure. So yeah, the context that makes sense. You was actually thinking, so on that note, I was thinking about the way that we think about things and how we might be fluent at thinking things that sort of get in the way of, and so the whole line of, of you mentioning being fluent at stuff that's not really in line with a life in pursuit of one's values or a life that is meaningful to someone. And I've been wanting to do uh, an episode on like serial killers or even just career criminals. And these are people that I think have developed a lot of them fluent repertoires of things that are really bad. (laughs) You know, these are things that are, they they maybe serve them in the moment for whatever goals they're pursuing, but really are not going to serve them in the long run. Um, And even if they, they do and they like get away with it, God forbid, um, that these are things that we generally wouldn't want to promote. And so it's not. Yeah, boy. I, <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about like fluent murder, but <laughs> I, I, mean, I, I, I just goes to show that like wherever there's, there's structured practice and repetition mm-hmm. can result in a very robust repertoire <laughs> yeah. that is actually really hard to get rid of once it's in place. Mm-hmm. You can see this maybe as a mild, milder example in kids who have these these sort of really extreme tantrums. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just the strongest response available to them in the moments uh, where they're confronted <laughs> by being held accountable or wanting to, having to do something they don't want to do. And even sometimes when you have have helped develop alternative skills for those kids. So now they know how to ask for help. They know how to ask for an alternative demand or something like that. They still might resort to the tantrum just because fluency is such a powerful outcome. If that's been in place and they've they've done it over and over, they've gotten their reps and it's been heavily reinforced, that's a really hard, it's resistant to extinction. It's resistant to other kinds of things. So there, you know, if there's any kind of downside of fluency, it's that it's at play whether we're attending to it or not. And so in the worst situations, you can end up with uh, people who have become fluent in really maladaptive forms of behavior like tantrums or murder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking of the people who maybe they, they become really good at something like carjacking or just general sort of petty theft and they get arrested and they come back out on the street after their sentence is up and they just go right back to doing what they do because they, they know that's something they know how to do. They know how to be successful at it. They know how to do it really well. It's probably one of the only things they know how to do. And so like just locking them away isn't going to change that repertoire. Sure, that yeah, skill absolutely. That developed. In, inside of that is like an acknowledgement mm-hmm. that becoming fluent at something is hard. It is. It takes work to get fluent at something. And yeah. so once you've invested all that work into into a skill 
and you know how hard it is to, to become fluent at something, it can be hard to want to switch. Uh, I experienced this for myself. So here in Reno, we're really close to Lake Tahoe, and there's some really epic skiing up there, and I'm a, I'm a skier. But a lot of my friends are snowboarders, mm-hmm. and there's a temptation to want to switch back and forth. But mm-hmm. I really I learned skiing first, and I'm much much better at it. Sure, and I can get on a snowboard, and I can do it a little bit. But my experience is that it totally sucks to snowboard because I could be skiing. Mm-hmm. I could be allocating my effort to where I'm more fluent with something, and so now the only time I snowboard is when I'm out there with people who have like never been before and then we can share the experience of kind of like sucking together but that's really the only benefit of like the switch like yeah. once you're once you've got your jam and you're fluent at it it's it's hard Ooh. to want to take on the whole learning process especially something like skiing where like it hurts to make errors and and, uh, and it and makes it a lot harder to choose uh starting over and getting fluent in something else i think tangentially related to that i'm just thinking about the the fact of as people get older, they tend to get sort of stuck in their ways is very commonly, obviously people change and they can change, but a lot of times people will find a way of doing things. They find music that they like, they find a routine that they like, they find food that they like, and they, they get really sort of stuck in that that rut that they're that they're in. And, I, and I'm wondering if some part of that is that, that habit, that pattern, the fluency of like, this is the, these are the relevant cues in my day. This is what I do in that situation. And so it gets to the point where like, I don't want to learn. I don't want to hear any new music. I like the music I like. I don't want to try any new food. I like the food that I like and, you know, sort of get, um, sort of, sort of stuck. And then I maybe even feel confronted by like, oh, my life is boring. And then I refuse to do anything about it. <laughs> sure. Well, I, you know, there's probably a lot more to that than just a fluency analysis. Sure. Yeah, but, yeah, it, yeah. but I think where it, where it maybe plays there is that, you know, being fluent at something is almost inherently reinforcing. So, like, your routine itself and, the, and noticing how good at it you are can be inherently rewarding to do it. You know, whether there's any function to it outside of just doing it. Yeah. Uh, You know, nobody's watching. Nobody cares. You don't get paid for it. There's no points to earn for it. But you'll do it anyway (laughs) because it's awesome. You know, it's just like (laughs) being good at stuff is is a good feeling. And so you'll you'll engage in those things and and they can become really routine and really habit. And, you know, like I think about like the way my dad dresses. Mm -hmm. He's just got his jam for what he wears. And he's like the only guy on the planet who can look like a tourist in his own living room. But he's, he's got his routine and he does it. And like, you know, he just hopped off the fashion train a couple decades ago and decided I go no further than this. And, and he's got his thing and he does it every day and he's, and he's a happy dude. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't mind, if you want to try and dig down and, and explain why this might work the way that it does, how is it that that when we get fluent at things that we get these kind of outcomes and, and we get sort of those, I don't know, we, we see that master, masterful performance. Sometimes we see those, those things that we don't want to see those maladaptive behaviors, but like, how is it that, uh, that fluency sort of works? So what do you think? Well, uh, yeah, this is kind of a tough one. I, you know, in itself, I don't, I don't see fluency as a process necessarily. Mm-hmm. If, if we're going to say that fluency is more or less a synonym for mastery, mm-hmm. then it's really the outcome. It's kind of a post hoc analysis. So it's not that like fluency does something, mm-hmm. uh, but it's an outcome to shoot for. And the reason it's an important outcome to shoot for is that fluent things, fluent behaviors like to play together. As just a simple way to say it. So if you if you really practice a few separate 
components. Like going back to thinking about sports or music, mm-hmm. you really practice your G, finding your G chord, and then you find practice finding C and then D. You'll find that playing a song that involves those three chords is just going to come right together. Having practiced the components in isolation and building fluency in those is going to make that whole composite, that more complex combining of those repertoires, happen much more readily. And that's really what we're after in the the students that we work with at FIT, is finding ways to identify what those critical component tool skills are and building fluency in those and then creating cool opportunities for those to combine and emerge together in new ways. And this is where like creativity comes from. And this is really like where the enjoyment comes from. And you know, when, when we're talking about these routines, we know it's not exactly the same every time. Mm-hmm. It's those little variations in it that make it stay interesting, even though from an observer's perspective, it might look like the same. So let's see, we, we mentioned some of, the, some of the things that can happen. So it's like fluency in and of itself is not always just a good thing, right? Because um, they're, but we generally see it in terms of if we do want to build toward things that we're good at, we do want to build toward things that we value and that are important to us. That being said, what are some maybe some downsides to, to fluent performance? Well, you know, I, I, there's a potential downside in, in fluency being misinterpreted as just go fast. So just pure rate building can have bad side effects. So like if, if, you, if you build too much rate and overly reinforce like a very particular response in a very particular context, you can actually decrease the, the opportunities that that can, can apply to other contexts. So the generalization curve will actually narrow around something that you've overly reinforced in very sp- particular conditions. So just rate building, if you think fluency is just go fast, then that's a tool that can be misused. So, so that could be adverse, but just in terms of like legitimate fluency, like real functional mastery. As I mentioned at, at the beginning, one of, my, one of my earlier jobs coming out of grad school was doing some organizational consulting. And, and working in organizations is an interesting place to look at fluency because you have some performers who are quite fluent at their jobs and some who maybe are new at it and aren't fluent. And so where fluency can, can become a problem if you're not paying close attention to it is in how you're pairing up workers. So some of the work that I got to do was in evaluating performances on, on like well sites uh, where they're drilling for oil and the, the consequences of errors are catastrophic. Sure. They involve tons of loss of life and property and, and nothing that you want to see. And, and, and building a team of workers where maybe you have two workers that have to closely coordinate on a, on a complex task to get, it, to get it done properly, efficiently, and safely, but one is quite new and one is quite fluent, could be a recipe for disaster. If you haven't set the expectations for communication and if they aren't familiar with each other's performance levels, uh, that can really go south quickly. The other place where this shows up, which is a little bit closer to home, is in acknowledging the challenge of being a classroom teacher. Sure. You, no matter what you're teaching, if you've got a class of 30 kids, chances are some are already fluent with what you're talking about before you've even started talking about it. And some of them aren't even fluent at the components they need to be fluent at the skill you're talking about. Sure. So they're like two or three teaching nodes away. And so there's certainly something adverse about the heterogeneity of, of a grouping of people that you're trying to all get to perform together when you have some that are hyper fluent and some that are nowhere close. I think one, one concern that 
some educators have raised about this idea of, of just that sort of go fast, uh, the rate building sort of stuff, is that drill and practice or drill and kill, it doesn't result in understanding. And so this seemed like another misconception to sort of address uh, potentially about just being able to go quickly doesn't means that you don't understand it. Sure. So I, I don't I don't know what the counter argument would be like. You definitely understand it if you do it slow. <laughs> so like you know I, I I don't know I don't I don't some of these are like kind of hard to even wrap my head around in terms of like how would how would being being able to do something like math facts more quickly not be a very clear demonstration that that. That means you know your math facts better sure. than if you took longer to do them, and and you know again acknowledging that not everything is better or faster, mm-hmm. but a lot of these you know if we're in a classroom, a lot of these academic skills really benefit from being at a more optimal rate. You want to read a little quicker, you want to count a little quicker, do your math facts a little quicker. So if it's not understanding that you gain when you go faster, I'm not sure what it is. And <laughs> right. what, I'm not sure what how you would quantify what understanding means if it isn't something about what the person does. Mm-hmm. And so if we're going to measure whether someone understands by how we watch them behave, then all we can do to be objective is measure things about the way they behave. And we're going to measure the rate of their response, the duration of it, its temporal locus, its temporal extent. We're going to look at dimensions of behavior in time. And that's kind of the only tells we've got, right? So, uh, I mean, I guess to be in that position, understanding has to be some fanciful thing that's unmeasurable. And that's <laughs> just not the, the – people are welcome to their opinions about that, but that's just not the domain for science. And it's probably not useful from an educational standpoint either. We're really trying to obtain this magical thing that we don't know whether or not we've obtained it. But I, I want to look at their, their performance of what they're doing. You know, I'm just going to – I just need to know that they're doing it. And sure. that seems that seems like an unobtainable goal, <laughs> in and of itself. So, and I was actually thinking if you if you wanted to get into this, we don't have to. But the going back to the math thing, specifically the idea of if you see three plus four, you can put seven. They might make the argument they don't understand that you're adding a a cat or a group of three things to four things, and that those things together make seven. If they just see this this thing means I write a seven, might be the argument that they have. Sure. Yeah, I guess I could understand that. I yeah. mean, you can teach teach a pigeon to match symbols sure. w- without the symbols having any representative referent out in the world and not really meaning anything, you know, yeah. squiggly line to squiggly line yeah. to dot <laughs> to whatever. Yeah, that, that's fine. That, you can demonstrate stuff like that. And I mean, if that's what anybody's doing in a classroom, gosh, I sure would be concerned about <laughs> like, you know, if they never bothered to say that the the symbol four goes with the sound four mm-hmm. with an example of like, this is how many four is, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's just not a very good scope and sequence of curriculum. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I was also thinking too, that, that part of this, uh, going back to what you said, sort of the proof is in the pudding in terms of if you then put a, a problem in front of them where they have to do a little bit more advanced computation with the same problems, if they can't do it, then we see that there's something else missing there. But presumably you're right. You should be that the, inclusion of this is not just that you see those two things together, write, write a number at, uh, next to it, but uh, uh, several opportunities of practice with that concept. Sure. I'll share a story with you about a, a, a student that we had the pleasure of working with who was an 11th grader. Mm-hmm. And he came to FIT for math instruction, and he worked with us for 100 hours. In that 100 hours, he went from registering somewhere in mid-percentiles for like third or fourth grade level math 
to being at the 75th percentile at 11th grade on standardized math tests. In 100 hours. In 100 hours, wow. he, he moved like eight grade levels. And in the course of, of that movement for him, we never once came close to actually teaching the content that he was contacting in his 11th grade math class. I mean, that's homework that I probably couldn't do, <laughs> to be honest. What we did was we went, we went back to the fundamentals and we got him fluent on numeration and place value and add, subtract, multiply, divide, and, and some simple fraction stuff, multi-digit computation. Nothing su super fancy, but just made it so efficient, so easy and automatic for him that when given the opportunity to then apply that in the context of really complicated multi-step algorithms uh, that he was being called upon to do in his classroom, he could put it together easy. And we, we asked him about it at, at the conclusion of his enrollment. And, uh, you know, obviously it was a very celebratory kind of meeting. He, sure. He was present for the, the meeting where we debriefed his parents on what we had accomplished. And everybody was really happy about it. And so we're kind of quizzing him on, like, you know, what's it like for you? So, of course, there was a collateral observation. This grade had gone up quite a bit sure. as well. It's great. And his answer to it was everything in the class feels so much easier now because when the teacher is explaining these these math problems that have like 20 steps, I don't have to stop and get lost in figuring out each step. Like when she says, then you add A to C2, mm -hmm. he's just got it, right? He, he could keep sort of situational awareness of where he is, what he's trying to accomplish in the math problem, where he is in the overall flow of the algorithm and not getting so bogged down into the execution of the steps that he couldn't keep up anymore. And so by giving him the tools to execute each step fluently, he could, you know, for lack of better terms, put his mind to the bigger picture of what he was trying to accomplish. There's something similar. I got to recently have a really cool conversation with a colleague of mine who uh, now works as a, uh, for the Army uh, up in Alaska. And she had the opportunity to work with Black Hawk, Black Hawk helicopter training pilots. Sweet. So these guys are like experts at flying these helicopters and are teaching other guys to do it. And one of the, the problems that, that they brought to her was what they called a lack of situational awareness mm -hmm. among the pilots. So they would sort of over fixate on particular instruments or particular aspects of the mission and then blow it on other important aspects. Mm -hmm. they'd, they'd fail to meet all the objectives of their mission or, or crash in the simulator or something like that. And we took that on as, as a uh, fluency problem. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of took a look at what are all the things the pilot needs to be paying attention to, to be an effective pilot and have like situational awareness. And we boiled it down to what are the things that need to be so fluent and automatic that you don't have to think about them to do them. So it's things like, what does that instrument tell me? Mm -hmm. Where is it located? If I was blindfolded, could I find every button in this cockpit and tell you exactly what it does? Mm. And how fast could I do it? How fast can the instructor do it versus a, a trainee? Sure. And we helped get oriented to sort of where to find those things that we don't need to be spending our kind of mental load on because we need to be paying attention to the bigger picture of the mission mm -hmm. and what we're trying to accomplish. And so if, if I'm trying to figure out how to make the flap on the right wing articulate, mm -hmm. I'm completely lost on what my buddies are doing, where I am in the mission, and what I'm trying to accomplish. All right, so 
we can start to head toward wrapping up. I think I like to end on the, the arguments that people may have made or you might imagine they've made or you maybe even specifically heard that are sort of against the idea of fluency or maybe just specifically going fast or rate building. Uh, how, how do you respond to that that criticism, that argument, or even that sort of skepticism of like, why should we do this? That's That sort of attitude. Uh, yeah, sure. So, you know, I think most of the arguments, most of the arguments made against fluency aren't really against fluency as as I understand it. Sure. And, and I understand it as, as fluency being a synonym for functional mastery, mm-hmm. like a, a level of skill that's serviceable to me in my life. And once you understand it that way, I don't think there's a lot of arguments anybody can make against it. Where where the arguments come from is in confusions about what fluency is. It's about that it's always going fast or as fast as possible, or that it's just about drill and kill and sort of failures to really understand the full scope of, of what it's about and the purpose of it. So here's something that I hear a lot is one of the great challenges for teachers and for behavioral practitioners is this notion that skills that have been, been mastered have to go back into acquisition training. So like, well, we trained it to mastery, uh, but then they forgot. And so we had to train it again and we sure. trained it again. And so there's an acknowledgement here that building to fluency correctly in the first place might be more effort. You have to measure it differently. You have to bother to time performances, to measure the rate, to really understand the dimensions of the behavior that that count, and to go beyond just kind of simple things like accuracy alone as as metrics of mastery and, and get into the real behavioral measures of that. So there's a little bit more effort. It's a little more to wrap your head around, but it's not that much more. Sure. I mean, it's kind of a baby step beyond yeah. <laughs> that in, in sophistication. And what you gain for that slight amount more effort is potentially huge. If you just took every time you ever had to put something that was quote unquote mastered and put it back into acquisition, think about all the time you spent thinking about that, all the time you've spent training and retraining and, and practicing and repracticing the same thing only to not get the result you wanted. Imagine if every time you tried that, you could get the result you wanted the first time you tried. And then that skill could get put away, put on the shelf as mastered for real, and now you could be moving on to the next thing. And so the, the cost benefit on that to me is just really clear. And, and that's the way I tend to respond to folks about that. Just, you know, it is worth that incremental increase in effort and understanding at the front end to just really do it right the first time and be off to, to bigger and better things. Sure. That actually had me thinking about something else is the... What do you do when you have uh, you're trying to introduce a totally new skill? Like they can't, they don't even know what to do to approach something to try and get repeated opportunities to go fast. Is that a time when you need to just do one at a time, sort of like this is this one. Now you try it. Good job. This is this one. Now you oh, try sure. it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, the notion of fluency isn't tied to any particular teaching method, and maybe this is this is one of those misconceptions that could have people be sort of resistant to it. So, you know, if you if you go to like a group like the precision teachers who are all about fluency and they have a particular methodology where they really love to measure on like free operant sprints for behavior. And you're absolutely right. That's not really where you're going to start. You're not going to start on a sprint if you can't walk yet, sure. right? But that doesn't mean that fluency is is just bound to a particular teaching style. You can do something like discrete trial instruction where uh, there's really sort of punctuated things, but that also occurs at a rate. And there's an optimal rate at which that could occur that's going to have better 
learning outcomes uh, than suboptimal rates. So there, you know, you you can kind of take it to any teaching style, and there's oh wherever there's behavior, there's a dimension of behavior that you could be measuring and having an understanding of of what the optimal range for that measure is. And that's what's going to get you fluency and functional mastery in the world. Awesome. Well, that's pretty much all the questions I had. If there's anything I missed, I'd love for you to try and just, you know, say whatever you got. If you wanted to, you mentioned having a soapbox about not even looking to rate a response in schools. Uh, you're welcome to do that. And if you just want to wrap up, we can do that too. So anything else you want to, is there something else you'd like to add to the no, I won't soapbox anymore, okay. although I do appreciate the invitation to do so. I, I, we could be here a couple more hours. Uh, but we, could, we can do a, another, another podcast later on some other subjects that, Sounds fun. that we can go for a rip on. But I, I really appreciate you being open-minded to the idea of talking about fluency and for inviting me here to do it. Sure. Um, for the record, there, there are people who know far more about this than I. And so, you know, I'm sure we can point people to additional resources where they can learn more about this. And... All in all, I would just say that it's not as scary a concept as, as maybe people's preconceived notions may have set up about fluency. It's not that far off. What we really understand kind of naturally as a culture and what we really understand from science in terms of how to measure these things. And so I, I encourage people to, to wrap their thinking around this and see what really functional mastery could look like for themselves and their lives and the people that uh, they're teaching and, and working for. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate your time being here today. A lot of valuable contributions. It's been great. So uh, thank you very much, Dr. Donna Newsom. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. So just want to wrap up by saying special thanks to Dr. Donnie Newsom for his time and all of his contributions to this episode. Yes. You're a genius, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. And thank you all very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode um, and you want to support the show, one way you can do that is by leaving us a review, some kind words, good rating, all that sort of thing. And uh, just, you know, tell someone you think might like the the series or an episode and, and share share this with someone else. That is how it goes. Word of mouth. Please help us out. All right, thanks. All right, this is Ryan O. This is Abraham. We're out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.